Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview policymakers, scholars, business executives, and entrepreneurs about some of the uh, urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao. Uh, so today we're we're back uh, again, another episode, remote episode uh, on healthcare and coronavirus, especially since uh, the ongoing outbreak. Uh, we thought it'd be really important to kind of pivot back to uh, the issue of healthcare costs and the, the industry. Uh, and joining me today from Chicago is is a true expert in the industry is Dan Michelson. He is the CEO of Strata Decision Technology, where his focus is to ensure the company delivers on its mission to help heal healthcare. That's their uh, core model. And, and the company's financial planning, analytics, and performance platform is used by over a thousand healthcare organizations, including many of the largest and most influential healthcare systems uh, in, in the United States. Uh, Dan has been in the industry for, for close to 30 years uh, and is truly one of the industry's key thought leaders. So um, thanks so much for joining me today, uh, all the way over from, from Chicago, Dan. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tiger. Appreciate it. Uh, and also co-hosting this show with me uh, is our um, old friend, Alex Wilson. She is a true expert on health policy and is a senior at Princeton. Uh, so thanks so much for helping me out with this episode again, Alex. Yeah, thanks, Tiger. Awesome. So, uh, Dan, I'm, I'm holding this book that you co-author right now, Margin Plus Mission, A Prescription for Curing Healthcare's Cost Crisis. And um, from my understanding, what your company th- does and what you do, uh, a lot of the day-to-day is sort of helping uh, health systems, hospitals to understand their costs and s- sort of uh, cut down the costs. W- would you mind just giving us a quick overview about uh, what you do, what Strata does, and, and some of the urgent issues in the in the healthcare cost uh, today? Yeah, Tiger. I, you know, I, the perspective I would give you is if you look at things from a socioeconomic perspective, the biggest um, issue that we have in our society right now, uh, overall, from a socioeconomic perspective, uh, clearly is the cost of healthcare. Um, it's interesting to have this conversation right now uh, with COVID-19 um, really front and center in all of our lives. Uh, but in some ways, this is putting, um, if you will, uh, healthcare on the main stage. And I think in the same way that uh, after 9-11, uh, many were motivated uh, and inspired to serve, uh, in that case, in the military and in other ways. Um, in this case, I think that same type of thing is going to go on within healthcare. So if, let's just say there's a, a rush of people coming in to help, what issue you know, or problem should they be focused on? And if you look at the cost of healthcare in this country right now, it's $4 trillion. Um, so it's roughly 20% of GDP. And for the most part, um, no one knows or understands where it all goes. Um, so we right now spend twice as many, uh, much money as any other industrialized nation. But uh, if, you, if you're trying to like say, hmm, if you think about search, there's Google. If you think about you know coffee, you think about Starbucks. If you think about the cost of healthcare, who do you think about? That's really the opportunity that we're chasing as a company. Uh, currently, Strata supports roughly 25% of U.S. healthcare. Um, so we work with 220 different healthcare delivery systems. And as you stated in the part up front, we help them with how they plan, how they analyze, and how they perform. Um, the financial side of healthcare can help fuel the side, the clinical side of healthcare. Uh, you can't have one without the other, especially when people are trying right now more than ever to really determine value. Um, so we're really trying to help um, if you will, grow up that side uh, of the business. Um, and that's really what we do every day. I, I think when I visited Strata and talked to you back uh, a couple months ago in Chicago, I was really surprised to learn that because you, you, you told us that w- when a patient gets charged, let's say $900 at checkout after seeing a, a doctor, the $900 has nothing to do with how much the hospital actually receives and how much it actually costs to have treated the patient. So there, there seem to be, a, a, you know, insurance company plays a role. There, there, there are all kinds of complicated factors behind it. So would you mind just giving us a quick overview of, of how Strata understands it and, and also how complicated is it to, to actually understand healthcare costs? Yeah, well, I think when people hear that the cost doesn't uh, and the charge don't correlate, uh, they're probably a little bit discouraged, <laughs> uh, to be perfectly frank. 
but the uh, the complexity of healthcare is, is pretty stunning. Um, so many of these organizations are um, three billion dollar organizations, five billion dollar organizations with twenty to forty thousand employees, uh, thousands of departments, hundreds of sites. Um, so. Uh, if you kind of look at what's happened financially from a healthcare perspective in terms of how the model has worked for the last 50 years, it's been essentially more equals more. You know, so the more that they do, uh, the more patients that they see, the longer the patients stay, uh, the more that they do for that patient when the patient's with them, uh, the more money that they make. The dynamics in healthcare have changed so dramatically over the last 36 months where that top line isn't growing as much as it used to. So now they're really trying to better understand their bottom line. In the past, the way that they understood the cost was they just took their charges and then they would just take a percentage of that charge and call that their cost, uh, which if you think about it, really doesn't make any sense. It's sort of like if you um, wanted to charge $4 for a cup of coffee and you said, well, 0.75 of that is our cost. So 70, we'll just call it $3 is the cost. That means we make a dollar on each cup of coffee. Well, clearly that is just a, a, a really rough estimate. It really doesn't mean anything. But if you use that approach, you would say, well, if we charge $8 for a cup of coffee, now our cost is $6. Well, clearly that's not right. Um, so they really didn't feel like they needed to know in the past and now they do. Um, so what Strata really does is, um, and what we have become the default option for in healthcare is for understanding the cost side of the house. So we have a cost accounting solution that's part of our, our, cl our cloud-based financial performance system. And hospitals will implement that and then be able to look at for every patient and every provider across every site of care every day, uh, what the cost is. And the cost by itself is an important number, um, but it really doesn't become vital until you marry that information up with the clinical data uh, to look at overall value. Um, in other words, uh, you can spend it infinite amount of money on, on something that has no value, that doesn't mean that um, that patient is being served better. And with healthcare, everyone has essentially been flying blind. Uh, they never have any data uh, on understanding the cost of care. So if you go up to a physician and you ask them, how much did it cost to deliver that total hip procedure or to see that patient in the clinic, um, they never receive any data. So how would they know? I, I remember you telling me uh, that, you know, 15 years ago, the healthcare cost for covering a, a family of four is around $3,000. And now it's around $20,000, which is almost a seven times increase. Um, and and it, if this trend continues uh, in the next 15 years or so, it will be just impossible to sort of hire anybody for any company. And so I was, was really curious to ask you, uh, to which side do you really attribute this sort of cost increase? Is it because of um, the hospitals don't really understand it, or is it because the, 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 the drug companies or insurance companies? I mean, it's, it's hard to place the, the quote-unquote blame on any one party, I suppose. But uh, would you mind just telling us a little bit about this trend of increasing uh, healthcare cost? Yeah, well, it's it's nobody's fault, but it's everybody's problem. And I think when people get into the debate, they try to point the finger at somebody. And so one example would be pharmaceutical companies. Uh, but if you look at the total cost of care, and once again, $4 trillion, um, the cost of pharmaceuticals is less than 10% of that. And so, you know, if you, if you uh, let's just say it was 10% and you said, okay, there's $400 uh, billion. Well, now we have a $3.6 trillion healthcare system, <laughs> you know? So at the end of the day, it's still extremely expensive. And, you know, it's a... Um, a mixed, uh, you know, set of circumstances that have got us here. Um, clearly, there's a grang of the population. Um, so there's three times as many people over the age of 65 as there were was 40 years ago. So we have many more people uh, to care for who are also many much more complex. So 50% of Medicare patients have multiple conditions, three to four multiple, uh, three or four conditions. Uh, that need to be treated. And clearly that's going to be more expensive. Also, there's much more that we can do for people now than we could do in the past. So if somebody had a diagnosis of cancer in the past, that was really a death sentence. Uh, now uh, people obviously, you know, live with a cancer diagnosis and, and are able to, uh, to thrive. Uh, my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer over seven years ago. Uh, she's, she's doing wonderful. Um, so to some extent, and I think you know the theory, you know, supply creates demand. 
Uh, and, and there's so much that we can do for people that's creating, um, you know, a bit of a cost crisis. And, and, and on the, uh, you know, uh, an, another issue that people deal with every day um, is just that there's a, a real shift towards that spend being something that people now have to pay out of pocket. Um, so the rise of high deductible health plans is so meaningful and it's not something that people see. And so for those of the folks on the call who don't know what that is, um, you now have an option where you can pay a much higher deductible for a lower monthly uh, premium rate. Um, while that looks really good on the surface, um, you know, some of these high deductible plans have somewhere between a thousand to five thousand dollars that you'll have to pay out of pocket um, because people now have to pay out of pocket. They're going to look at what the cost of things are in a whole different lens. Um, so I think you have this almost perfect storm. Uh, I could go on and answer this question for about two hours, <laughs> but you have this perfect storm of things that have come together where now the cost of healthcare is the headline and something needs to be done about it. Yeah. So you mentioned that hospitals and providers don't necessarily always have access to this cost information, but now you're talking about a situation where patients are really incentivized to know what this know what the cost of their procedures are um, so that they aren't spending as much money because of these high deductibles. Is that information available to patients in a meaningful way? Um, if it's not available to providers, how are, you know, average citizens understanding the cost of their care? <laughs> it's a great point, Alex. And, and also the cost of care depends on who you're talking to because the provider has a perspective on what that actually means. The employer the patient, um, the healthcare provider, depending on who they are. So cost has very different meanings to very different people. It's really unfortunate that uh, with these high deductible plans, people are being put in a position where they have to, uh, at least from their own perspective, try to understand the cost of things. Uh, so as you guys may be aware of, there's now uh, transparency laws where uh, hospital providers um, are compelled uh, to put information on the cost of different procedures online. Uh, but once again, that is, in this case, the price. That's what they're charging. And it's not necessarily what the patient is going to be paying because uh, patients have many different health insurance plans uh, and they may be at different points in terms of the use of their deductible. Um, so it becomes extraordinarily confusing. Uh, my personal opinion, uh, so this is not a company opinion necessarily, but my personal opinion is... Um, even though that, that genie is out of the bottle, it would be better to put it back in if we could, uh, because I don't think patients should ever be in a position where they have to go shopping uh, for something that is, um, you know, uh, relative um, to their own personal or to their family or friends, uh, personal health. Uh, it, it's just way too confusing of a position uh, to put people in. Yeah. Um, so I do think healthcare providers are going to play a more active role in the financial prescription uh, for patients in the future, uh, where they can do counseling and advise people in a much more productive way. Uh, but right now, um, the way that the system works is that it doesn't. Um, and patients are put in the middle uh, where they have to navigate. And it's extraordinarily hard to do that. Huh. Well, I guess to make it even more complicated, there's another interest at work here, which is insurance companies. So if a patient has met their deductible, or maybe they have a lower deductible, that insurance company also has an incentive to be paying a lower price for these procedures. So how does the advocacy of insurance companies, which we know are very powerful entities, combine with the advocacy of, of hospitals? Um, and patients to deliver lower cost care? You know, it only really works well when it's integrated. So Kaiser Permanente would be an example of the largest healthcare delivery system in the country, uh, Intermountain Healthcare, the largest healthcare delivery system in California, where they're vertically integrated and they also are taking on the risk, meaning they are also the, they're not only the provider, they're also the health plan. In that case, I think there is more of an inclination uh, for them to get involved with what's called population health, right? So really trying to keep people um, out of the hospital, um, really doing work with social determinants of health, 
to address uh, hunger and homelessness and many of the other social conditions that contribute to the overall cost of care. Um, so I don't think there are unfortunately many examples where health plans and hospitals are on the same side uh, and have the same end goal. Uh, so I think you're likely to see some disruption in that space where there's others that come in and try to make it stunningly simple uh, for people to navigate the system. Um, you're seeing different startups who are pursuing different angles on this. Um, I think you're going to see it more and more. And now with what's going on with COVID-19, you can see uh, it took something like this to bring telemedicine uh, to the forefront. And uh, you're seeing a lot of action and activity on that right now. There's a great example of a technology <clears throat> that can lower the actual cost of care, you know, for many and also improve the convenience radically. You know, so instead of having to take time off of school or off of work, uh, to go see a physician, uh, you can see them just like you would, um, you know, FaceTiming a friend uh, to a great extent. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of innovation on the edge uh, regarding going after the issue that you talked about. But the folks who are on the inside of it, unfortunately, often don't have enough of an incentive to change. And that confusion, unfortunately, creates some opportunity for some who are operating within the system. Because uh, we talked a lot about incentives, we, incentives for, for insurance companies to step in, for hospitals to reduce costs, for patients to better understand it. Uh, do you think this sort of understanding the cost is sort of the, the very much the fundamental basis for, quote unquote, healing the healthcare system, fixing the healthcare system? Because uh, I think you, you mentioned the survey uh, by Strata that says, you know, nine out of 10 hospital executives don't know the cost and about a third of hospitals are still operating in the red. So is it still true? Like, do, do you really think this costing is the fundamental way to go about uh, revolutionizing the, the healthcare system? Uh, yes, but you I, think, yeah. I'm sorry, Please, Tiger, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no. I, I was pretty much, I was just rambling on my question. <laughs> no, 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 it was a great question. And I, and I, and I know where you were heading on it. Um, I, you know, let me just make one point extraordinarily clear. Um, when I talk about uh, the cost of healthcare, I am not talking about the patient's perspective because I don't think that they should have to be involved in, um, you know, in actively reducing the cost of care. Um, I don't think that should be their role. Um, I think those who provide the care, that should be their responsibility. Uh, so when I'm talking about, uh, if you will, transparency uh, in terms of the cost of care, uh, I'm saying those that provide it should know and understand it. So as you said, we did um, a survey of 100 uh, healthcare executives who are operating within healthcare systems. And we said, do you ever get any information whatsoever on the cost of care, meaning the cost that it costs that organization to provide care? Because that is the only information you can use uh, in order to help drive out waste or, or reduce inefficiency. And nine out of 10 said that they never get it. So think about this. Uh, if you have a uh, $5 trillion or $5 billion healthcare delivery system, uh, I won't use a specific name, but many are operating at about that level. So $5 billion in net revenue per year. Well, 80% of that spend is controlled by physicians. So roughly $4 billion. And roughly 100% of them never get any information on it. So if they're trying to decide between one therapy and the other, or they're trying to evaluate their efficiency versus another physician, um, or uh, just different options uh, and different plans of attack uh, for different disease states or different procedures or uh, different uh, types of surgery. Um, and they're not receiving any information on any of it. Well, to use an analog, then how would they know that a flight from, let's say, New Jersey to Chicago is $200 or $2,000? They would never know. Um, so that is the problem. You, you have the largest industry in our economy where nobody is sharing any information on the different alternatives and what they mean. And when you ask physicians, uh, there was a study that was published in Health Affairs where they asked physicians, do you ever receive any information on the cost of care? And eight out of 10 said never. Then they asked those same physicians, if you had that information, would you at least consider it um, when you were selecting a device. So they were asking orthopedic surgeons uh, this question and 80% said yes. So 
Um, that opportunity is the one that I'm speaking of. And for right now, uh, as it stands, the people who control the decisions, who control the cost of care, are completely flying blind. I'm really interested in exploring that a little bit more. I truly agree with you. I believe that physicians should be able to see that cost information. But sometimes we run up against this argument. Some people look at this goal of sharing cost information and get scared about that. So you're right. Yeah, because. We worry about these words like efficiency, right? We worry about this idea that a physician is going to see a high cost procedure and say, oh, maybe we shouldn't pick that one. There's this idea that all of this cost information should be covered up and the physician should be making the choice based only on what is best for the patient. And the cost could be as high as it could be, but that's what's best for that patient, right? And I was wondering- how you think about this concern and how you would respond to this concern about quality of care shifting when people understand cost better? Yeah, well, what I would tell you is this, and this is what I tell uh, every CFO that I speak to on this topic. Get up in front of your physicians and make and say one thing and make it extraordinarily clear. Um, don't ever make a single decision based on the cost. It could be my daughter, It could be my wife, it could be my mom, it could be my sister. Don't ever make a single decision based on cost. But don't operate um, in the dark, you know? So we should know what these different options are and if they're cost effective or not. Um, So once again, when you ask physicians, would they like to see that information? They say, sure. But I don't think that any of us for a second would want a a physician making a decision strictly based on the cost of care. But I'll give you an example. Um, So you're making an assumption in that statement that everything a physician does was and is and always will be the right decision. Um, And we're making that call without having any information. So uh, there's a drug called Xperel and Xperel is given uh, post-surgery as kind of a nerve block. So it basically reduces, or it supposedly reduces the use of opioids and reduces the length of stay. Okay. And uh, the average hospital or health system is spending anywhere from two to $4 million a year, somewhere in that range, using this drug um, off indication uh, for, for things that it's not indicated for, like a total hip procedure. Uh, so strata, uh, which has right now the largest database of pure cost information, meaning the cost of provision of care, not the charges, not the price, but the actual what was used on the procedure from a supply drug labor perspective. Um, So we decided to take a look and we looked at 24,000 total hip procedures. And then we evaluated um, using the data, you know, whether it actually had an impact on length of stay and whether it actually had an impact on reducing use, use of opioids. We found that it actually didn't in either case. Okay, so that's 24,000 cases. Um, So is this drug um, indicated um, for certain things like a shoulder block? Would it be effective? It would. Um, But what I just described to you is about somewhere between 100 to $150 million in savings just across our client base for using the drug appropriately. Okay. Um, I'll give you another example, and this has not a financial implication, but just, you know, a clinical implication, um, and it's especially relevant right now. Um, so as you probably know, the common cold is a virus. Um, it's not a bacterial infection, uh, but yet antibiotics get prescribed uh, for that purpose. Half of all antibiotic prescriptions are, are written for not bacterial infections, but viral infections. Huh. Meaning that there is no way in any case that it could work. Is that and it's really it's really a, being given to placate uh, patients, oh, right? Wow. It's a placebo effect uh, more than anything. Um, so there are plenty of opportunities where things are going on based on inertia within healthcare. That if we don't provide data uh, to help people make a more balanced decision, um, you know, we'll never cut in uh, to the cost of care. It will never happen. So Yale actually took a look at this and they, what they were able to do is they combined clinical and financial data together 
uh, pretty interesting. They took uh, data out of Epic, um, their electronic health record, and married it up with data from Strata on the cost accounting side. And then they looked at um, uh, patient safety incidents, uh, what are called PSIs or um, hospital-acquired conditions hacks. And what they found is that when a patient safety incident or a hack occurs, a PSI or a hack occurs, the cost of care is actually five times greater than it would be otherwise. And they actually made less money. So we actually looked at what their revenue would have been, right? Because sometimes when bad things happen, actually they can charge for those extra days that a patient's staying. And so like, unfortunately, in the past, when um, let's say a patient got readmitted to the hospital, the hospital would actually make more money because of that, right? Um, so there was readmission rules put in place through the Affordable Care Act that basically eliminated that um, as an as a perverse incentive. Uh, but what Yale was able to find is that um, by mirroring cost and quality data together, um, they actually should be and can be investing more um, in reducing those incidents. Uh, because it has a financial benefit um, and it's fairly significant. Um, by bringing this clinical and financial data together uh, to their clinicians, they were able to save over $150 million at one organization. Wow. So my point is, and once again, that the cost of care um, is the only story here. Um, but the fact is no one's even opened the book, you know, in the past. And it's kind of like going back, uh, if you guys are familiar with Moneyball, uh, everybody felt like everything that they needed to know was in their head when it came to baseball. Uh, but once they started putting data uh, and mirroring it up with that experience, mm -hmm. it literally changed the game. Um, so healthcare um, is a lot more exciting and a lot more important at the end of the day than baseball, even though I'm a big baseball fan. Mm -hmm. um, and they're operating without anything. That all they all they have in their head is their experience and their intuition, but they can't see what other uh, organizations are doing and how they're approaching it. They don't understand um, even what they're doing uh, in the operating room and what the impact of it is. Yeah. Um, so that's really the work that we do in collaboration with our clients, whether it's Kaiser or Cleveland Clinic or Yale or Duke or Northwestern or you know any of these MD Anderson. Uh, many of that we work with half the children's hospitals in the country is really just trying to um, help them uh, better support the decisions that they're making. Yeah. I would love to, to follow up a little bit about the fact that nobody has really done this before. Like why, why is that the case? Is it because the tech and, and the data analytics are just too hard for people to, to do? Uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Why hasn't it occurred to other people that, that, it's so chaotic and, and people need to really understand the cost here. Well, things aren't a problem until they are, as you know. Um, so, you know, it wasn't like there wasn't cost accounting systems out there. They, there was. People barely used them. Uh, they had the wrong methodology. Like I said, it was based on what's called a ratio of cost to charge. So no one trusted the data and they never really used it. And that was actually okay. It's, it's kind of like a law firm. Think of a law firm, the more hours that they build, the more money that they make, you know? So as long as that top line is growing, they're fine. Um, what's happened in healthcare is the top line isn't growing anymore. Um, so there's been a massive shift to the outpatient setting. The inpatient setting was their cash cow. A lot of these high value, high volume procedures um, now are done in the outpatient setting. Um, so uh, if you couple, you know, the perfect storm I was talking about, uh, with just the the net effect of that, it's, you know, you have hospital margins over the last three years dropping from 4% to 3% to 2%. That's not a really good trend. <laughs> it's not a really good margin to begin with, uh, but it's really not trending uh, in the right direction. Um, so, you know, cost accounting has become cool now. You know, people are really trying to get their head in their hands around understanding how to do it. Um, from a methodology standpoint, you guys may be familiar with a methodology called time-driven activity-based costing or TDABC. Well, that was something that many did for a while uh, with essentially consultants and stopwatches and, uh, and Excel spreadsheets. Uh, that type of data, which is more research than anything, is not that helpful. You need to be able to look at data every day for every patient, whether that's quality or cost. 
Um, so you're right. As part of it was a technology play. Um, new systems had to be built that were essentially the equivalent of a smartphone versus a cell phone. Um, so they provided something that the other you know, technology before it didn't. Um, and that really was the observation that we had at Strata that put us ahead of the market uh, was that the time was now, uh, but the approach needed to be different. I would love to just hear your thoughts a little bit more on, on the data analytics part, because uh, as you kind of already hinted, a lot of the datas were kind of quote unquote noises. They weren't really helpful. And, and there, there are data that are truly helpful signals that, that can help you make decisions. Uh, so it just seems that to me that every company is a data company nowadays. You know, all the Silicon Valley startups telling, you know, it's, it's all about data analytics coming in and using some machine learning tools or AI or things like that. It's, it's actually quite surprising that, you know, when I read about Strata, you guys don't use those flash words. <laughs> So, so I would I'd love to hear, hear your, your sort of approach to, to thinking about those things. And also, I, I remember uh, you saying that Silicon Valley startups sometimes don't really uh, do well when it comes to the healthcare industry just because they don't actually get into the nitty gritty stuff. Uh, so, so, you know, based on your decades of experience, I would love to hear how Strata has really successfully approached this thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, I'll tell you um, one quick story. It was about uh, over a decade ago. Um, I was at a conference, um, a big healthcare tea conference, and there was some guy in our booth who was wearing a North Face jacket, looked to be in his mid-30s. It turns out it was Sergey Brin, uh, the co-founder of Google. And he was really trying to understand the role that Google could play within healthcare. At, the point, at that point, they were playing no role uh, whatsoever. And he ended up uh, sitting down at a demo station at a conference with us, me and one other person, for about two hours, which was kind of surprising because I think he limits his meetings normally to 20 minutes with a clock, you know, in the corner counting down. And I asked him why he was so interested in healthcare. And what he said to me at the time was pretty striking because uh, Google was a high-flying company. Later that week, he was actually going to be on the cover. He ended up being on the cover of Time magazine for the first time. And he said, um, you know, what Google does is mainly search and uh, advertising. That's really all they were doing at that time. And still to this day, I think that represents 90% of their revenue, their profit and everything else that goes with it. And he said, if that's all Google ends up doing, I will consider it to be a failure, which is a pretty, you know, bold statement. <laughs> and, uh, and he was trying to get into the weeds of, um, of healthcare. Um, the challenge was Silicon Valley, um, and they ended up launching something called Google Health. Many people might be familiar with it, ended up folding after a couple of years. Um, and there really hasn't been any Silicon Valley companies that have gained really market leverage on the healthcare provider side of the house. Uh, you see a lot of them chasing the consumer side of it now, and I do believe that they'll get some traction there. Um, but I think the, the, inclination to, to treat the largest industry in our economy as a quote-unquote vertical, uh, well, I think that's kind of restrictive <laughs> because uh, this is, uh, you know, everything uh, in healthcare um, is ultimately a component of workflow. And unless you're willing to get down into those weeds and stay there and then dig deeper, um, you can't just float in and say healthcare's all screwed up and I got the answer. Um, the an analog that I used, I think, with the Princeton students that day that came to visit Strata was I think of healthcare as a 17 by 17 by 17 Rubik's Cube. And every time you turn it, you'll screw up something else. Um, but if you really understand how to solve a Rubik's Cube of that nature, all you have to do to really get to the other side is understand that it's a bunch of little Rubik's cubes inside. So if you solve it at the at the core of it and then move your way outward, you can actually get traction. And uh, we actually had someone come in during our users conference and solve the world's largest Rubik's cube and broke the world's record by about four hours. He did in three hours and twelve minutes. You can go look it up online if you go on on uh, YouTube and look up Strata and then Rubik's cube. I'm sure you'll find it. Uh, but the wow. point is that there's an incredibly complex set of problems. Um, but if you can niche your way through it and focus on 
one or a handful of them, you can really get some traction. And I just don't think Silicon Valley has had the patience to really work the Rubik's Cube uh, to get that deep and work over the course of not just days or weeks or months or years, but decades uh, to really dive that deep. That's been their constraint. You know, so you'll see announcements from companies in Silicon Valley saying they're going to pull data together to do A, B, and C. Um, but, you know, that alone won't solve healthcare because I think what they maybe in their arrogance, if I can use that word, fail to see sometimes is that there's no one solution to a million problems. There's a million solutions to a million problems. So you got you to gotta figure out which set you're going after and then stick with those, and then you'll get traction. And I do believe this will begin to change. I do believe that companies, now that there's uh, the infrastructure of electronic health records that have been put into place uh, by companies mainly in the Midwest, like Epic and Cerner and others, um, now that you do have that data, now you can do something with it. And I think that's where those companies can now come in and at least add some value uh, to solve certain problems. But I think they have to be humble uh, in their approach. And that really hasn't been uh, a characteristic of Silicon Valley, at least in the past. Uh, absolutely. I, I think when, for me before, when I look at all those uh, announcements of, you know, Amazon, JP Morgan, Berkshire Hathaway, forming an alliance to come to, you know, quote unquote, disrupt the healthcare space and fix things, you know, we, we often felt hopeful. But I think um, I totally get your point that you have to get into the nitty gritty. But but what about government policy? Do, do you see, you know, it's election year, so there was a lot of debate between, you know, the moderate Democrats, say, advocating for public options and, and you know, the single payer people like Bernie and Warren. So do, do you kind of see government as a capable agent of coming in and, and really fixing this thing? Well, no, because I don't think anybody can or will. Um, I think they could be part of the solution, and I think that's what we need to recognize. So the Affordable Care Act, um, regardless of which side of the aisle you're on, uh, has left a lasting impression. Uh, in many cases, that's very positive. Uh, that's helping people um, all over the country, you know, right now. Um, you know, so, you know, if you have a pre-existing condition, now uh, you can still get health insurance. Uh, there's not lifetime limits. Um, you don't get paid uh, to be, you don't have to pay if you get readmitted to a hospital within 30 days. Um, there's a whole variety of things that I think have been productive. And um, once again, our solutions to different problems. But um, I think when, when healthcare becomes a political punchline, those of us who've been working on it for 30 years uh, become pretty deflated um, because we recognize that that's just politics. Um, you know, so once again, I think it's important to understand that we need to get in the weeds to be able to solve the problems. I think people recognize that taking 150 million people or more off of their own health insurance and having that uh, subsidized uh, through some type of tax or other type of approach um, is a pretty big leap and uh, may be difficult for people to swallow, regardless of how they feel about it. Um, the action uh, actioning of that is extraordinarily uh, difficult and challenging to get your head around. Um, so um, I think every election uh, will be a healthcare election uh, from now until the end of time. Uh, that will always be, I believe, uh, the number one or two or three issue on everybody's list. Uh, clearly right now, COVID-19 um, is top of mind. Um, but when it comes to the election, looking back three months, healthcare was once again uh, the number one issue on people's minds when it came to the election uh, or to who they were going to select um, ultimately. Um, so uh, I think the uh, <laughs> the merry-go-round will continue to go round and round, um, but I think we should all recognize that there's not simple answers to complex problems, um, but there are different answers to different problems, and we should be focused on those um, and really prioritize which ones we want to go after. And uh, try to get the best backing we can uh, to get the most traction that we possibly can. Mm -hmm. And to sort of bring together this conversation of the government with our previous conversations about healthcare costs, um, we are, as we've mentioned a few times, in the middle of a global pandemic right now. Um, and one of the effects of that in the United States is that because of our healthcare system, 
a lot of people are wondering how the government and how hospitals are going to deal with cost, um, cost of testing, cost of treatment um, for this virus. Are hospitals even thinking about cost right now? Should patients be worried about cost? I've read articles about people getting negative test results back and then getting a $3,000 bill for the tests that they were mandated to take. So what are your views on this space right now? Yeah, well, listen, I, I don't think that that should be the issue that we're dealing with right now. Uh, clearly, there are things that are much more pressing, um, but eventually this will become an issue. Um, in fact, just over the next 60 days, many hospitals are going to have to lay people off um, if things don't change. Um, as you know, elective surgeries have been canceled almost completely. Um, that is an enormously important revenue stream uh, for hospitals. Uh, Strata just published a study, um, and it basically said that uh, on average for every COVID case that comes in, uh, a hospital is going to lose close to $3,000 per case. Um, so as you may know, there's um, potentially as we speak, the passing of $100 billion in funding for hospitals and, uh, and healthcare providers it will not be enough uh, to be able to support uh, these organizations. Um, some are going to be losing up to $10,000 per case, and you cannot sustain that um, over time. Yeah. Uh, so um, I don't think that um, that is front and center in terms of, uh, you know, what's driving the activity of hospitals. Um, and I think that's really encouraging. You know, what I would tell you is that, you um, the amount of activity uh, amongst our client base, we had 350 people on a pod, on a webcast uh, the other day uh, just to talk about the implications about how to financially model the impact of COVID-19 cases, how to understand uh, what the impact is going to be for canceling elective surgeries, um, what the cost of premium labor is going to be. Obviously, you know um, that, uh, you know, COVID-19 is going to affect many healthcare workers. Uh, that's going to require many more people. Uh, called in uh, to assist, especially with the volume spike. Um, this could be a calamitous moment for hospitals and healthcare providers if we don't get behind them in the right way financially to support them. So $100 billion is a start, um, but it's actually going to take a lot more than that to support these organizations as they, as they are the front line you know, in this fight. Just to, just to quickly follow up, just uh, moments ago before the interview, you sent me this report uh, this blog post by Strata, and, and in it, you mentioned that uh, to help reduce the impact of higher costs for COVID-19 cases, as an initial step, the federal government should provide a 35% increase in Medicare reimbursement. Um, so, so and, and even that reimbursement would not really fundamentally solve the, the broader problem that, that you kind of mentioned. So uh, I, I guess this is more of a general question than um, specifically related to healthcare costs, but how do you think of the the response so far? Um, I mean, there was a lot of debate about you know the, the economic impacts on 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 sort of the society, whether that's a solid trade off compared to you know shutting everything down. And, and so, how do you, do you think the the responses so far have been relatively effective um, from your stand up standpoint? Absolutely not. I mean, I think, you know, the stress uh, in healthcare is so extreme right now. Uh, you've all heard the expression PPE, personal protect protective equipment. The fact that masks, gowns um, are, you know, are not available is kind of stunning. Um, and, you know, we're putting healthcare workers in harm's way. Um, so I don't think anyone can begin to be satisfied with how this is working at this point. If that with that said, uh, I'm hopeful, you know, that now the messages have been sent and received and uh, the right action is being uh, taken. Uh, but I think all of us know that that at this point remains to be seen. Um, so um, I personally believe that this will be healthcare's greatest moment. Um, you know, so in the same way on 9-11, people were compelled to serve, um, you know, from a military and other perspective, like I think I mentioned before. I think people will be compelled uh, to to serve within healthcare, you know, both now and in the future. And um, I think that we should be celebrating um, 
those in healthcare as heroes. Uh, we actually started a, a push online uh, called My Healthcare Hero, uh, just hashtag My Healthcare Hero. Um, so people can recognize, you know, their husbands and wives and sons and daughters and fathers and mothers who are walking uh, into harm's way, uh, not working from home, not studying from home, uh, but actually going out their front door and, um, you know, and walking right to the front line of this work that's, uh, that so needs to be done right now uh, to help uh, so many. Um, so no, I, I don't think we're where we need to be or even close. Um, I think the financial impact of this has to be understood because you you know from a um, impact to business, you know clearly this is significant, and you can see that from an economy perspective, um, moment by moment. Unfortunately, um, but you know the huh. one business um, that can't be affected by that is by this right now is hospitals. Um, we have to be able to support yeah. them financially. So if there's any bailout or relief package, you know, front and center, first sentence, a first bullet point has to be what we're doing to support those who are who are risking their life to save ours. So I have a bit of a naive question to follow up, just because part of this could seem a little counterintuitive to some people. Um, we're saying that there are so many people in the hospital because of coronavirus. It's displacing, you know, elective surgeries, other elective procedures. But the bottom line is there are a ton of people in the hospital and healthcare workers are in super high demand right now. How is this resulting in a loss for the hospitals? Is this because currently they're providing this care free of charge? And would the government stepping in be the government saying we are going to pay for all or some of this care? Who is the cost falling on right now? Yeah, it's actually all falling on the hospitals. Um, yeah. So number one, um, the way that they would reimburse these cases is too light, uh, which is why we're saying it needs to be 35% versus 20%. Mm -hmm. um, second is that they have all canceled elective surgeries, meaning that right now, they're converting their ORs into ICUs. Yeah. So um, maybe in New York, uh, it might be the case that that uh, capacity is being used. Uh, but in other hospitals, it's sitting dormant. Um, so uh, think of it like a restaurant. You know, there's nobody uh, mm -hmm. coming in, but you're being asked to, um, you know, keep it open. Um, so they have to be able to fully staff. So the expense is there, uh, but the revenue is not going to be coming in. Um, so you're cutting off between... 20 to 30 to 40%, depending on the hospital, of their volume. And that impact yeah. financially is going to be crippling. Huh. So besides the influx of potential workers into the healthcare industry, much as you said that we saw people signing up to serve in the armed forces after 9-11, um, what do you think are going to be some of the other effects on hospitals of the coronavirus? Will it change the way that they budget, the way that they prepare, and how can the government support the changes that you see maybe sort of nascent in the future? Yeah, well, they are actually interesting that you mentioned budgeting because uh, we help hospitals create their budgets and their plans. Um, they've taken a traditional approach where they create a 12-month budget um, and it's sort of a wish list and that's kind of how they've rolled in the past. Um, a lot of organizations, both inside of healthcare and outside, are now moving to more of a rolling type of approach, a rolling forecasting type of approach. Um, that is going to go mainstream because of this now, um, because the uh, budget essentially now needs to be thrown out. At this point, it's no longer relevant uh, because of the financial impact of this. Um, so they're all at the process, most of them, um, trying to shift to a rolling forecast or that type of approach. Now, with that said, um, what are the other effects uh, that, the, you know, once we get to the other side of this, that this is going to have, I think one of them will be the mainstreaming of uh, telemedicine. You're already seeing uh, this in spades all over the place right now, uh, where people are uh, doing remote assessments. And I think you're going to um, uh, see that increase, not decrease over time. Uh, and that is certainly a great way to smooth out demand. Um, so I think that um, that's certainly one area that you could point towards. 
With that said, you know, hospitals and healthcare delivery systems have been working for years um, on disaster um, uh, plans. And, uh, you know, this is not necessarily new to them from that perspective. What's new is not being supported and having the appropriate um, equipment or supplies, uh, you know, to this scale. Um, and you hear the stories and they're they're kind of heartbreaking, um, you know, that people are being asked to just wrap a bandana around their face and hope for the best. Um, so, you know, clearly from a uh, equipment serialization uh, supply perspective, I think you'll you'll see better support on something like this by far in the future than we're seeing today. Uh, from a public health perspective, I would say that's probably the most important lesson. I'm, I'm glad you're really yeah. optimistic about this thing because I, I feel like pessimists would say, it's not that we've never seen such kind of thing. I mean, for example, in China, they've seen the SARS outbreak back in 2003 and something, and then and then a lot of the mistakes were were made again, similar mistakes. Uh, so a lot of people would say only because COVID nineteen right now is, is such a tangible feeling on on people, like the economy is literally shutting down. But like two weeks ago, even even when the rest of the world is suffering people in the U.S. are kind of feeling nonchalant about this thing. So do, 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 wouldn't some people, I, I mean, I, I guess the cynical part of me would say, yeah, after this passes by, people will kind of revert back to the normal and we still won't solve some of the fundamental issues in the healthcare system. Yeah, Tiger, I don't, I don't, I don't know about that. I, I think you're, you're right about some of it, but not all of it. Um, so I don't know that we're going back to normal after this. Uh, I think there will be a new normal. Um, never have we had an experience like this, and never will we again, potentially in our lifetime. Um, so this hasn't really happened on this scale for about 100 years. And you are seeing everybody on the planet having the same experience at the same exact time. And, you know, one of the things that I wrote the other day is what the world needed right now more than anything was a common enemy. Well, it looks like we got one, you know, so uh, we will get to the other side of this. And when we do, there will be many stories of heroism and, um, you know, of people who stepped forward and really did what needed to be done uh, to get us to a better place. And, uh, you know, I, I will be optimistic, you know, from that perspective, because <laughs> I know we'll get to the other side of this. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would say that given what it is, when you really stop and think about it, in, intellectually, you could say, yeah, this has happened in other countries and, you know, we've seen this before, but emotionally, we've never seen anything close to this before. I mean, the only thing that kind of comes to, to mind to some extent is 9-11 or the uh, 2008 financial crisis. Here's the reality. This is a combination of both of those two seminal events, Right. Because from a personal safety perspective, at least for many of us, 9-11 was when the first time that we ever felt threatened on scale across this country uh, to, to that extent or even close. And 2008, uh, from a financial perspective, is what people now remember um, as um, you know, something where their financial security uh, was under attack. But this is combining both of those two things at the same time without any clarity of what the other side looks like. You know, so personally, I believe, you know, that in times of chaos or confusion or crisis, you know, leaders emerge and, and character is revealed. Um, so I think we're going to start to see that and we're going to see it in a big way. Um, and you're already starting to see it. Um, so I think people can look backwards. You're right. Um, you know, the start that we've had here isn't great. You know, um, we've now come around and there's certainly more to do. But that will be yesterday's story, you know, and we now need to look ahead as to what can and should be done. And I personally believe that everybody has a role to play. You know, we can be uh, negative and, uh, and reflective uh, or we can be, you know, uh, moving forward. And um, an optimistic and contributing to making things better. And I think there's so many different ways uh, that people can help. Uh, like I uh, shared earlier, you know, Strata, Strata has published some research that can support 
hospitals and healthcare delivery systems as they get the funding that they need to. Uh, we've also launched uh, a public awareness campaign, My Healthcare Hero and Our COVID Fighters or Our Corona Fighters uh, to bring awareness to these folks who are risking their life to save ours. Um, you know, I think uh, at the end of the day, we'll get to the other side of this uh, and there'll be many people to thank. Uh, we should start that process now. Absolutely. That's actually such a wonderful message. Uh, yeah, it's it's so much clearer and, and more well-reasoned than, than uh, what the cynics might say. That, that, that's absolutely a wonderful note to, to wrap this kind of interview on. I, I, I totally agree with you, Dan, about how, how positive changes will come out of this. And hopefully, we'll, you know, the globalization processes and, and all those things will all sort of continue. Uh, you're absolutely right on that. Um, I, I know you have to go soon. So I, I just want to kind of quickly wrap up the interview by, by asking two more questions. One is what brought you into the healthcare space, uh, maybe just a little bit about your personal journey and why you sort of continue to, to stay in here. Because um, I, I remember um, back, back when I was uh, talking to you in Chicago, you were saying, you were, we were kind of joking about Goldman Sachs and you were saying how, you know, whatever things you could do at, at those, you know, financial firms or whatever, you, you could do in a place uh, like Strata in, in the healthcare space, but actually feel uh, more so socially fulfilled and engaged uh, and responsible. So I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, Tiger, just real quick on that. What I would say is uh, the, the, the short story is I was a year out of college and, you know, had a first job and didn't really like it, didn't really think it mattered and didn't really know where I was going to go or what I was going to do. And instead of looking for another job, I just decided to interview industries and try to figure out, you know, instead of a position, what a purpose would look like and where I wanted to spend my time. Um, as I looked around, you know, healthcare, largest industry in our economy, as you know, and we talked about, it has actually the most problems as well. Um, so I want to spend my time working on big problems. And so it seemed like the right place to be. At the end of the day, um, we say it's right on what flows through our software is not bits and bytes, but human lives. So the opportunity to work on something that has a social good is what keeps you uh, motivated over time. Uh, what my uh, career advice is for everybody, <laughs> and I may have shared it the day when uh, you guys came to visit us, was that um, if you can find something you care about and work with people you care about, you will have a great career. Um, so that's what got me in the door and that's what's kept me committed. That sounds amazing. Uh, I mean, since the name of our show is, uh, is Policy Punchline, I really have to ask you at the end what the punchline is here, even though you previously mentioned how whenever there's a political punchline, you, you kind of feel cringed out by it. So I still kind of have to ask you, what, what do you think is the punchline here? Well, not a political punchline, but a policy punchline. And uh, what I would say from a policy perspective is it's so important uh, that we support those who are risking their lives to save ours. And so we need to get the appropriate amount of funding uh, to support uh, the hospitals and healthcare providers who are on the front line of what will be probably the most important battle that any of us will witness over the course of our lifetime. Um, so uh, that would be my, uh, my push. And then once again, um, share the stories uh, of those who you know uh, using hashtag my healthcare hero and let's start the process of uh, helping and healing and um, and thanking those uh, who are there for us. Absolutely. And, and in Thank addition you. to uh, the hashtag my healthcare hero part, how else can people find out more about the work Strata is doing and you are doing? Yeah, you can always go to www.stratadecision.com to learn more about Strata. Perfect. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks so much for, for ending this this uh, interview with such a positive note. I mean, I've, I've learned so much about it, not just on healthcare costs um, and, and, you know, how tech companies are slightly less equipped to disrupt the space, but also, you know, about COVID-19 and, and policies going forward and just a lot of positive energy here today. Thanks so much for, for joining me again, Dan. Yeah, it was great talking to you and Alex and I uh, appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much for joining me as well, Alex, for, and also for helping me prep for, for all the healthcare questions and stuff. Yeah, of course. And yeah, thanks again, Dan. That was really an amazing conversation. Thanks, guys.
Awesome. And, and this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Uh, please follow us on policypunchline.com. Uh, follow us on iTunes, Spotify, rate and review us. Um, thanks so much for listening today. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.